Thanks for checking out the Reveal Vineyard Podcast. Our mission is simple. Find God, find others, find yourself. That's it. We hope through these conversations your spirit will be stirred. For more information on Reveal, you can visit our website at www.revealvineyard.com. Well, we're continuing with our series called Jesus, the Greatest Show on Earth, where we're looking at the life of Jesus according to John's gospel. John was a disciple of Jesus, uh, and he writes out of his firsthand experience with Jesus. And so we've been studying what uh, the Bible says about Jesus, who he was like, not the uh, retouched photo of Jesus or the hijacked version of Jesus that culture can take. But we're trying to discover Jesus according to uh, what John wrote about him. Now next week we're going to have a very impacting service as we're going to participate with churches internationally around the world in what is called the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Uh, today there are more Christians being persecuted than in any, than in any other time in history. And we're going to talk about their story. We're going to see videos, we'll read some of their stories, we'll have times of uh, silence, some times of prayer, uh, some times of worship, some very creative ways that uh, we're going to be able to support our brothers and sisters around the world who are enduring uh, suffering, imprisonment, abuse, death, uh, just for believing in the name of Jesus. So I'm asking that all of us that we would uh, be here next week. Don't care what the cardinals are doing. Uh, let's be here to support brothers and sisters who are, uh, their plight and are being persecuted. And so we'll join with churches around the world. We're going to put together a special service for that uh, next week. And uh, I know it'll be impacting for you. Today we're going to be in John chapter 10. We're going to take a kind of a spiritual wellness check of sorts. uh, A spiritual health exam, so to speak. There's no copay required. uh, No health insurance needed. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Never mind, we won't even go there. Uh, uh, But no appointment necessary. 2 Corinthians 13, Paul says this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So we're going to kind of take a self-exam today. We're going to be starting in John chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. If not, we'll put it on the screens, but I always encourage you to bring your Bible with you uh, as we're reading. Uh, We're going to start in verse 22. The reason we're not starting in verse 1 is because uh, we went through verses 1 through 21 uh, several several months ago when we did our I Am series. Uh, Verse 1 through 21, Jesus gives two of his famous I Am statements where he says uh, that I am the door and I am the good shepherd. We've already studied that, so we're going to start in verse 22 and uh, see what God has for us when we take uh, this spiritual self-exam for ourselves. So if you have your Bible, turn to uh, John 10, start in verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter. Now, we're diving in deep, so I want you to think really hard on this one. Uh, I'll have questions for you that you're going to need to respond back to me. That little phrase, it was winter, why does John tell us it was winter? Now, come on now, why does John tell us it was winter? Because it was winter. People, come on, wake up. It's not a trick question. When was the War of 1812? Now we're moving. Maybe I should have led with that one. So John John tells us it was winter. Here's why. From verse 21 to verse 22, uh, there is a gap of about two, two and a half months. Now when you read John chapter 10 from start to finish, it appears that it just kind of is, you know, the next event that took place immediately after, but there's an actual gap uh, that took place. And so it's winter, and it's the time of the Feast of Dedication. Now, uh, there are seven... 
Old Testament feasts or festivals that are written about in the Old Testament. And they were days appointed or ordained by God to be kept in honor of God's name. Each of them were significant in that they celebrated uh, either God's provision uh, and they also were foreshadowing to the coming Messiah and his work of redemption that he would do uh, among the people. And so there are seven of these feasts that we read in the Old Testament. There's the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, there's the Day of Atonement, uh, the Feast of Tabernacle or Booths, and these are, are ordained by God. However, the Feast of Dedication that we're reading about here, nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. That's because it celebrates an event that took place after the Old Testament was written. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, so prepare. Last book of the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. The first book of the New Testament is the book of Matthew. And there is a gap in between the two of these books known as the intertestamental period. How long is that gap? 400 years. Well played. So there's a, a gap that takes place. And, and they're celebrating an event, the, the Feast of Dedication, that took place during this time. Now, there was an influential family during this intertestamental period who were the Maccabees, and they were thrown into notoriety. Uh, when a Syrian king came to power in 175 uh, A.D., and his name was? Oh, very nice. Say it louder, Ed. Epiphany. See, all of you, I heard you mumble it. All of you got it. I didn't expect you to know that one. Uh, but here, Epiphanes was uh, not a good guy. Matter of fact, he is known by uh, writers, uh, rabbinical writings early on, he had this nickname, it's just known as the wicked. Now, anytime you're known as the wicked, you've done something to achieve uh, that, that type of uh, uh, nickname. Matter of fact, uh, he came in, rolled through the city, uh, and he took 40,000 Jews, put them to death. He sold 40,000 others uh, into slavery. Uh, and he outlawed many Jewish religious practices. Owning the Torah was uh, forbidden. He tried to burn as many as he could find. And at one point he went into the temple and he took a pig and he, he, he slaughtered it on the altar of, uh, the, of the altar of, of burnt offerings. And then he took the pig blood and he sprinkled it across uh, the temple, which is about the worst thing you can do in a holy place for the Jews. Today, not that big of a deal. Someone kills a pig in church. We're like, bacon. That's what we'd be thinking. But back then, this was like unheard of. The temple was, was now uh, uh, defiled, and it kind of, the people snapped. And so the Maccabees, uh, several of the brothers, uh, kind of got together, and they formed this um, revolt of sorts. They were severely outnumbered. Uh, but through circumstances, they were able to take back the temple. And the temple underwent a purification ceremony uh, that lasted eight days. Thus, the, the term, uh, Feast of Dedication. The temple was rededicated uh, during this time. Um, Josephus, a first century historian, also called the Feast of Dedication. He also called it the Feast of Lights because uh, the city would be illuminated with candles and a joyous expression of the time when the temple was regained and rededicated, purified, uh, for the people. So this is what is being celebrated now, the Feast of Dedication. By the way, still celebrated today under a different name known as what? Hanukkah. Some of you thought it was just an Adam Sandler song that rhymed with marijuana. It's far deeper than that. This is what this is, is celebrating. So I don't know if that interests you at all, but sometimes I don't know what you're interested in, but I thought we'd throw some history in just so you get an idea. Feast of Dedication, here's what they're celebrating. Verse 23. 
as uh, Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Now, this is known as Solomon's uh, uh, porch or portico. Uh, we have an uh, image there. It's on top of the Temple Mount where the, um, where the temple was. The lower picture is a recreation of the temple where all those pillars are. That was Solomon's porch, his portico, his colonnade. The common area where people met. It was wintertime, got them in, uh, got them out of the environment. We read about this taking place as well. Um, Peter gave a sermon in this place in Acts chapter chapter 3. What I want you to know is that when you read the Bible, it's not fictitious places made up that never existed. You can go there and see the ruins and and walk on it, and you're not supposed to touch it, but I touch anything, even if I'm not supposed to, when the tour guides aren't looking. But that's all, you know, part of that that, that you can do. So understand kind of where we're at in, in the context. So Jesus is in the colonnade of Solomon, And they start a conversation in verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, then tell us plainly. Now, there's nothing sincere about this question. On first glance, you would say, well, here's some people, they really want to know. And they're saying, Jesus, come on, put, put, put uh, put this waiting to end and let us know who you are. Tell us plainly. Understand that what they were trying to do was they were trying to lure Jesus. These were individuals who had seen the miracles take place, uh, the blind eyes that was opened uh, just a couple chapters earlier, uh, recently, within you know, a couple months of this particular time. Uh, the crippled man who was uh, crippled from birth who was healed, they heard Jesus on several occasions say clearly who he was. And so really what they were trying to do was trying to lure him. They were in the temple, there were uh, Jews everywhere, and they're trying to get Jesus to claim that he was God. Because in end of chapter 8, they picked up stones and tried to kill him. Uh, they weren't able to because Jesus snuck away. And the idea is, just say it one more time. Now we have the firepower to put this thing to, to, to bed, and, and we can do away with you once and for all. So, so once and for all, so come on, Jesus, just, just tell us. How, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? Tell us who you are. And Jesus, he, you know, he doesn't fall for any of it. Verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe, the works that I do... In my Father's name, bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Now, I debated whether or not to hit on that last part. Uh, it should be in red on, your, on the screens there. Not part of my flock. Uh, some, uh, well, if you do any digging on this, the waters get a little murky just on that, on that little phrase. Uh, some will interpret verse 26, and particularly that phrase, not part of my flock, through the lens of God's sovereign election, or what is also known as predestination. Uh, simply put, that God elects some to save and chooses others for damnation. Uh, we're simplifying it, but, but that God uh, uh, accepts some and he rejects others. And so some would enforce that Jesus is saying here, the reason that you're not part of my flock is because you can never be part of my flock because the Father never chose you to be part of my flock. It's one of the identifying marks of what's known as Calvinism. John Calvin, who's a church reformer in the 16th uh, century, uh, he said things like, not all are created in equal condition. Uh, rather, life is foreordained for some and eternal damnation uh, for others. In other words, every person is predestination for either heaven or hell. And so some, if you read scholars, even just on that short little phrase, they will say that these people never had a choice to be part of God's flock because they were never chosen to be part of God's flock. And so in our passage, uh, hardline Calvinists would say, 
that the condition of these Jews that Jesus is speaking to, they are in an uncorrectable situation because the Father did not choose them to be part of the family. Now, if this is correct, if they were, uh, could never accept, if they could never step into believing uh, because God just kind of wrote them off and said, you are scheduled for damnation, sorry, you didn't make the cut, whatever that looks like, then verse 38 seems rather out of place. We're going to put it on the screens and read it. Jesus is continuing the conversation with them. He says, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. Verse 38. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, then believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. If, uh, If a Calvinist is correct and their spiritual condition can never change then why is Jesus encouraging them to believe? Why is he saying, look, if you can't believe me, then at least believe the works that you've seen with your own eyes in hopes that God may enlighten you that I really am the Messiah. If if it can't happen, it seems like Jesus is just kind of wasting his breath here. The fact is that Jesus was encouraging them to, to, if they can't just believe his words, then believe what they've seen with their own eyes. Now, in direct opposition... To Calvin was a, a guy by the a name of Jacob uh, Arminian, and he has a, a form of teaching called Arminianism. Uh, and he was on the other side saying that God hasn't elected some and rejected others, but he said that it's just man's free choice and man's free will, that whoever decides to follow, become part of the flock, has that ability out of their free will to change and embrace Jesus. Now, there is great tension between these two teachings that continue even within the church today. Those in church history who have dogmatically emphasized one and denied the others have got themselves into all kinds of trouble. So um, uh, Arminius would say uh, that they're not part of the flock now, but they can become part of the flock at any time. All they have to do is is embrace Jesus as, as Lord, and they can be part of the flock. Here's why I told you all this. I want, because for one, I don't think I've ever clarified uh, with you kind of my position on this. Um, What I believe is that salvation is available to anyone who wants it. I believe that the death of Jesus, or some, one of the five points of Calvinism, is this idea of limited atonement, that Jesus only died for some, and that others, because they weren't chosen, his death does not apply to. I fall on the side of unlimited atonement, that the work of Jesus is available for everyone. The grace of God is available for everyone. Anyone who would call upon the name of Jesus, man, woman, child, doesn't matter what country, what generation, what tribe, what creed, what tongue, that the gift of salvation is available for everyone. Always has been, always will be. But I also believe that in a ways that we can't get our mind around, that God has chosen us. Because the Bible teaches both. Hear me clearly. Salvation, everyone. But in a way, whether God, through his foreknowledge, already knew who was going to be in the family, in the flock, whatever that might look like, in ways that we can't get our minds around, the Bible clearly teaches both. I mean, for one, the Bible tells us uh, things like, uh, come all who labor and are weary. Right? Matthew 11. Jesus says, call Come everyone who is labor, who, who is, who is uh, weary, and, and carry a heavy burden, and I will give you rest. John 3.16, the most famous verse, that God so loved all of the world, right? Not a portion of the world, but all of the world, and gave his son. And then Second Peter 
3.9 where Peter says that God wishes not even one person to perish. That it's God's desire that all would come to salvation. But the Bible also speaks of in Ephesians where it says that he chose us even before the foundations of the world. It also talks about that he predestined us as adoption for as sons and daughters of his. The Bible speaks of both. Now, let me just, can't totally get our minds around it. But those that would sway to the side of that God's election is for some and, rejects, and he rejects others, I have no part of that. I don't see that as being a biblical teaching. I believe that salvation is extended and cast wide for everyone. And in a way that I can't totally get, there's a way of this predestined idea as well. Here's kind of where I've landed on it now. That when each of my children were born, they were predestined. We predestined them. We predetermined what kind of people we want them to be. And ever since they were born, we have been working at getting them to what we predestined them to be, the type of adults we want them to be. Followers of Christ, men and women of character and integrity, hardworking, sowing into the community, living above themselves and sowing into other people. Since the moment they were born, we have been working towards what we predestined them or predetermined them to be. However, they have the free will or choice whether or not they want to embrace what we have predestined for them. And so in some way that we can't fully understand, there's both of these ideas are at work, but here's what I want to leave you with. Let's not try to put God in a box and always say that we have to figure everything out about God. There are things about him that we just will never get. And when we try to figure him out so much, is when I think we come up with the idea of that God loves some and rejects others. That's, that's just, I don't see that being part of the God that, that, that we serve. So there's this, there's this duality and this tension that is taking place. I don't know if that is anything that strikes a chord with you, but uh, it's uh, a very prominent part of, of this passage, and so I wanted to touch base with him uh, on it. So it brings up the question, if they're not part of the flock, well, then what does it look like to be part of the flock? What does it mean to be part of the flock? And Jesus begins to outline, here's what it means to be part of my flock. Look at verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of the flock. And then he says, here's the first one. My sheep hear my voice. So here's your first self-exam question. Am I part of the flock? Am I hearing the Savior's voice? What does that look like for you today? A characteristic of believing in Jesus is that we hear the voice of our Savior. Now, now I'm going to be in, I've never heard the audible voice, but the, the leading and the calling of God calling us first into salvation. And second, his voice calling us into a life that aligns with his. Listen, the beauty of this is that, is that Jesus wants to speak to us. And that he wants to guide us and he doesn't expect you to just kind of be floundering around on your own. That he really does want to guide and lead our path. So have you heard the Savior's call? Have you heard his voice? Today, are you feeling him guiding you? Is there any sense of his voice in your life? Jesus says, if you're part of the flock, then you hear my voice. Much of his voice you're going to hear is coming just through uh, the scripture that, that, that we have. And then he goes on to say, the second part of uh, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. Now here's the remarkable truth that God just doesn't know about you, but he knows you. He just doesn't, uh, uh, he, you're just not a number on a roll to him. He didn't create you on an assembly line without personal touch and care and intimacy. That the Bible makes it very clear that, that, that you are known intimately by God. 
It says he knows every hair on our head. It says that he's engraved our name onto his hand. It, 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 it speaks of the idea that he collects and saves our tears in a bottle. That not only does he know what we're going through, but he knows to the extent that we're going through. And he, and he keeps those things as, as a form of, of, of an intimate way of looking after those who he loves. Now, I'm just going to do something a little different. I want you to just close your eyes for a moment. I want to read you a passage out of Psalm 39, and I just want you to allow this to just kind of settle and rest over you. We talk about this idea of God knowing us, so just relax here for a moment. Just let the Holy Spirit minister to you. Oh Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans... Even there, your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. If I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book, every moment laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. If I can even count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. And when I awake, you are still with me. Can you get the sense when Jesus says, my sheep, they hear my voice and I know them. You're just not set out on your own and God watching from a distance saying, I I hope you make it. There's this idea of intimacy that, that, that is spoken over us. And then look how he continues, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. It's question number two of our self exam. Am I following him closely? 80% of uh, Americans, I've read some that push it up in you know, low 90%, would claim to be Christians. But what would it look like if those who claim to be Christians actually follow Jesus? Those who say they believe in Jesus actually follow Jesus. Can, can we say we follow Jesus if we're not doing the things that Jesus did? Jesus said, look, if you're part of my flock, you hear my voice. I know you and you follow me. That we seek to do what Jesus does. What does that look like for us today? What does that look like for you today? Maybe it involves some type of risk because you've heard the Savior's voice. He's calling you into something. And now the idea is, will you follow or will you not? What does it look like? Are you, are you in 100%? Are you 50-50? Are you 70% in? Regardless of what comes your way, can you say that I'm still a follower? How, how do you respond when you're wronged? Do you kind of save and store up hatred and bitterness because a follower of Jesus forgives? Or when you're persecuted, do you hate because a follower of Jesus loves? 
When life is short, do you still follow? When you're socially short and lonely, how do you respond? When you're financially short at the end of the month, when you're emotionally short, what, what comes out of you? Now, we're not talking perfection. But what we are talking is that over time, that we should be increasingly imitating his behavior. And Jesus says, look, if you're part of my flock, you're going to hear my voice, and you're going to follow me. Then he goes on, verse 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. Are you experiencing him eternally? Self-exam number three. Now, when you hear the, the word eternal life, don't think about heaven. Don't think that eternal life waits for you later. The idea was is that eternal life begins with us now, that it happens here. It's not something that Jesus has for us in heaven, but it's deeper and it's wider than that. Jesus says, I've come to give you life and abundantly. Not life that starts after you die, but life that would start here. So here's some questions of experiencing him now. Do you experience any, any peace when life is hard? Are there any new desires taking place within you? Have you stepped out from under guilt? Romans 8.1 says there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the new life that Jesus says, I want to give you. Don't go walking around in guilt because of your past. You're forgiven. Are you using the gifts that are imparted to you by the Holy Spirit? Are you sensing any victory over temptation as Romans 6 speaks of? Are, are, are you beginning to conquer some of those things? Are you sowing into eternal things? These are all part of the eternal life that Jesus has come to give us now and it begins with the, his, with the relationship with him. Stop thinking of life that happens later. It's life that happens now. It's one continuation. We go from life to life. Matter of fact, D.L. Moody, uh, an evangelist and publisher, uh, said this. I love what he said. He said, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. He says, don't believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, out of this old tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch and sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. I was born in the flesh in 1837. I was born of the Spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the Spirit will live forever. Are you experiencing him eternally, today, now? goes on, verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Self-exam number four. Are you resting and confident in his ability to save you? Now there are some that anytime there's an altar call, you might be the one that says, yeah, yeah I, I want it. Maybe there's a doubt within you whether Jesus can really forgive you or whether your sins were too great or you're not sure if it's stuck. Jesus says, look, if you've confessed me as Lord, then no one is going to take that away from you. No one is going to snatch you. The idea is someone coming along and snatching a purse off of a woman's arm when they're not alert or, or awake. And Jesus says, even when you're not alert, I still am, and no one can snatch you out of my hand. Nothing can separate you from me. Look at Romans eight thirty-five. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things you are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depths nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, Jesus our Lord. Just meditate on that. Are you experiencing him eternally and are you resting in his ability to say, you're covered. I, I, I got this. Now, 
Look at verse 29. Jesus continues, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Let me have the band come up, please. And then Jesus ends with uh, verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. Self-exam number five, have you seen him accurately? I love how this passage begins to close down. The Jews picked up stone, verse 31. The Jews picked up stones uh, again to stone him, and Jesus said to them, he's so very calm, he says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? I mean, he's just like, look, look, before you start throwing stones, just tell me, which one of it was it the blind guy that can see? Was it the guy who was lame from birth that's walking now? Was it the 5,000 people I said, just let me know what I did that, that is causing you to want to kill me? And they answered in verse 33. The Jews answered him, it is not for the good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. Listen, do you see him clearly? Let's do away with this idea that Jesus was a good man or a good teacher or a great social worker or had great ideas that can bring communities together and sing Kumbaya. That's not why he was crucified. He claimed to be God. Do you see him clearly? Do you see him clearly as God? It's why he was crucified. He wasn't crucified because he had some great ideas of of, of social justice. He was crucified because of his claims to be deity. And so here's my challenge to us. I'm going to put up that last screen there, Rusty. Do you hear his voice? If you've never heard his voice for salvation, you can hear his voice today. Maybe there's something working within you right now and, and you've never taken that step and you, and, and you hear the promptings of saying, now's the time. Just make me Lord, make me Savior of your life. Are you following him closely? Are you experiencing him eternally today? Resting in his salvation. And have you seen him accurately? We're going to close with a song of worship. And uh, then I'll come back and pray to close out the service. But join me here as we pray. Let's bring those lights down. Lord, I ask for us as a church that we would begin to see you clearly. Lord, I pray that we would take this self-exam. And some of it may be difficult for us to, uh, to look at through that lens. But I pray that all of us will... Hear your voice. For those that maybe have never heard your voice, calling them to salvation, that it can be done simply today by just saying, I receive you as Lord. I confess you as Savior. And forgive my sins that have separated me from you. Lord, would we uh, begin to step into that? Would we hear your voice and would we follow closely after you? Speak to each of us what that means and what that looks like today. Would we follow after you? Would we experience you eternally that all the blessings, all the good things that you have for us, that we would begin to experience them today, now? And would we rest in your ability to save? And would we see you clearly? See you as a God who loves us that never ceases, it never ends a God that never gives up, is constantly calling us to you. We ask in Jesus' name.